Hi, everybody. We're glad to have you back for another menopause.com podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Clark Datchler. He was the lead singer and songwriter for a group in the 80s that I'm sure you've all heard of called Johnny Hates Jazz. And we're going to find out where they got that name as we talk to him later. He has re-recorded one of their biggest hits called Shattered Dreams as a fundraiser for Ukrainian refugees. And that song has climbed the UK music charts again. So we're really excited to have Clark Datchler with us. And Clark, I, uh, I see a keyboard there. Uh, I wonder if you could play a verse of the new version of Shattered Dreams to get us started. Sure. So much for your promises. They died the day you let me go. Caught up in a web of lies, but it was just too late to know. I thought it was you who said they'd die for love. And now you've given me, given me nothing but shattered dreams, shattered dreams. Feel like I could run away, run away from this empty. Awesome. And everybody knows that song. They've heard they've heard that a million times. Now it's going to be stuck in my head forever. <laughs> I'll never get it out. It's such a great song. Wow. I, I know the feeling because a lot of musicians, we're all music fans. You know, if you're a musician, essentially you are a music fan. So there are songs that do that with me. And it's partly annoying and partly wonderful because you know it has something about it that is able to do that and as a writer i've no idea how to make that happen you know if i did know i'd be doing it every other day of the week but it's just some kind of you know alchemy you know it's interesting everybody we've told so far that we're having this uh this uh podcast with with you um you this is this is the success that you've had you say two words shattered dreams Oh, of course. Oh, I know that song. Oh, that's a great song. Oh, well, yeah, I know that song. It's not your only song, but that it just shows you how popular and 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 over the years. I mean, you did that what thirty years ago? That song? Yeah, thirty-five years ago. Actually, thirty-five years ago, and it's and you sing it exactly the way you sang it thirty-five years ago. I mean, your voice. You're obviously, you know, keeping your voice up because it sounds beautiful. Well, the interesting thing for me is that one of the reasons I have to keep my voice up, actually, it's kind of a necessity, is that um, one, Johnny Hates Jazz is still together. We, we, we broke oh. up in the, in, right at the end of the 80s, and then 20, over 20 years later, made contact again, and with the 80s resurgence, started playing live. So I sing the song a lot, but also, and we can talk about this soon, I live stream twice a month, which I've been doing ever since the, the pandemic. And so I'm constantly singing. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing to do because um, I'm primarily a songwriter. I always describe myself as a songwriter who sings. The, the world is populated now. The musical world is populated with singers who songwrite, which means that my greatest strength, I think, is as a songwriter and my second strength is as a singer. Yeah, I'm not as good a singer as I am a songwriter. So um, it's a good thing to have to do to keep 
my voice in shape. It's like any kind of muscle. You've got to, you've got to keep it in shape. Sure. Well, we're going to talk about your incredible, uh, successful career. But th today, I mean, we really want to jump into, um, you, you started a campaign, a fundraising campaign to support Ukraine. You've adapted your hit song, Shattered Dreams, to raise money for PolandWelcomes.org to help the ever-increasing number of Ukrainian refugees. How did that come about? Well, when I started doing my, back then, actually during the pandemic, it was a weekly live stream. Basically, it's something called Journey Songs, and it, it focuses on one song I've written per week or per episode. And I have a quite a big live following, you know, in when it comes to doing that live stream. And I, I talk to the audience. There's a lot of, you know, it's very interactive. I am getting there, don't worry. And um, <laughs> it sounds like I'm going off at a tangent. And, um, and then I talk about the song, the motivation behind it, the, the, the moment in time that it was written in, both personally and societally. And then I perform it acoustically. And during the course of doing that, um, someone called Arthur Strout, who was the keyboard player for Daryl Hall and John Oates, amongst many other people, fantastic pianist and keyboard player, um, watched me do one of these live streams because he, you know, loved Shattered Dreams and, and some of the other songs. And um, he is part of a small TV company called Trio, Trio TV. And he told the other guys in Trio about me. And we started all of us discussing the idea of me fronting a TV show, uh, a music based TV show that they had begun to conceptualize and then I added in more of the concept with a colleague of mine here in the in the UK and one of the team is a guy called Steve Casarino and Steve Casarino is better known to many people as Chef Rock he's a TV chef but an incredibly highly achieving chef at that Steve is a great guy and it was his idea that Shattered Dreams could be applied to the plight of people in Ukraine since the outbreak of, of war there. So he came up with this idea and I thought, wow, I'd never thought of Shattered Dreams in that context. I've thought about it in many contexts and I, I tend to write socially oriented songs, but that really wasn't one of them. And then Steve volunteered for a, a very large um, NGO called World Central Kitchen as a chef. And he and many other international chefs went to the border of Ukraine and Poland to cook for refugees who were crossing the border en masse without, you know, anything to their name. They'd had to leave everything behind as the war began. And on his way to Poland, he was at JFK and Shattered Dreams came on the sound system and he thought to himself, this is this has got to happen this is meant to be so he contacted me from poland when he was there cooking for um these thousands of refugees explained what had happened and explained that he had come into contact with a charity there called poland welcomes and he really felt that rather than go to one of the big ngos who tend to get a lot of the funding because they they advertise what they're doing in order to raise donations. Um, this was a small charity that had only started as a result of the war breaking out. 
And he said, I think these people are the real deal. We need to support them and they really need to be supported. So the more we talked about it and the more I started to talk to the, the people at Poland Welcomes, the more I thought, yeah, this is exactly what needs to happen. So that's that was the inception of it. Yeah, that's that's uh, amazing. And and, you know, I keep checking with Steve because um, he's a, a good friend of ours as well. Uh, and it, the song keeps climbing the charts and and, uh, you know, the, the idea like even on your website, the idea is that there's links to uh, PolandWelcomes.org, which we're going to put up there, by the way, uh, so that people can donate. And I'm sure I'm sure they benefited significantly from the notoriety of the of the re-release of that song. Well, certainly that's the idea. It's it's uh, Poland Welcomes are, are an amazing organization. Is an amazing organization. They are amazing people. Um, they were not involved in charities before they formed this. Literally. The day after the invasion started, they had to make a decision. Hundreds of thousands of refugees were flooding across the border. And they're basically a group of former high school friends who had all done well in business in different ways and decided they had to do something. So they formed Poland Welcomes overnight and with, with the objective of creating shelters, refugee shelters, to, to house people. They now run four very sizable refugee shelters and they're, I think their capacity is at 700 people and they're now scaling up to 1,300 people. And they're giving people not only food and shelter, hugely important, they're giving people um, psychological help, psychological support, which you can imagine from that situation is, is very much needed. And critically, they're giving people protection because most of these people are women and children. Of course, the men have had to stay and fight. So the women and children are coming across the border and they are very susceptible and vulnerable to being used and abused in different ways. And so I think this is an amazing thing when I heard about this. Um, that that's one of the main remits that po Poland Welcomes has is to protect people. I thought that was incredibly important. You don't really hear too much about that. What happens yeah. to people who flee, who flee war zones and disappear, especially the women and children? And it doesn't bear thinking about what happens to them. So I, when I heard that, I thought, I am definitely supporting these people. So I actually went over to uh, a small town called Yaroslav, in the east of Poland, near the border, which is where Poland Welcomes are based. And they took me around their shelters. I got to know them. One of the guys there is actually a former editor with the Daily Telegraph newspaper over here. He's a Brit. So he was my bridge and um, a guy called Neil Mitchley. And um, yeah, you know, between us, we kind of put this all together, put a, a, a really, I think, lovely music video together which Neil and his friends um, were very much involved in supporting me with. So, uh, yeah, we came up with something that hopefully will raise significant money. And I mean, that main thing with something like this, and everyone needs to be aware of this, is that despite what we are all told about, you know, the megastars of the moment, the corporate megastars like, you know, Beyonce or Adele or Ed Sheeran or, you know, Kanye West, whoever it is, they, they all seem like they are 
incredibly wealthy. And this is true. But of course, most musicians don't make any money from streaming. I mean, hardly anything. It's like the 1950s again, where everyone's being used and abused by a music system that just doesn't work. So the reason I say that is what is most important is that we get people, if they can, to donate directly to the charity. Listen to the, 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 the single, watch the video, download it, all of that small amount of money goes to the charity but to really help them we need people to go to polandwelcomes.org and see if you can find it in your hearts to to leave a donation it's very tough these days isn't it we're all challenged by a cost of living crisis but Mm. these people are challenged with a life and death situation oh yeah and and, you know we're going to obviously have a link there we're going to we're going to circle back to it at the end but Let's let's uh, let's go back a little bit uh, into your history and the history of, of your musical career. And, you know, your dad apparently was quite the musician and, and had quite an influence on you, uh, uh, both musically and and career wise. Um, why don't you tell us about that and how that really moved you into uh, the career that you established? My dad was a successful professional jazz musician and he was in two bands the stargazers and the polka dots very much names of of the day you know the the 50s and early 60s and the stargazers were the first band to have a number one hit on the uk chart Uh, the first british band excuse me the other artists before then had been from the us they were the first british band they had their own radio show which was akin to having your own talk show now you know on tv They were really big radio stars. It wasn't his kind of music. So he jumped ship and joined this band called the Polka Dots, which were a jazz vocal group. And they they won many awards from the music press back in the day. But they worked with Frank Sinatra, with Joe Stafford, with the Beatles. My dad sang on um, I'm the Walrus. And uh, I also worked with a very young Jimmy Page. And... uh, Ella Fitzgerald had an, an, an incredible, very, you know, credible career as part of the Polka Dots. And um, the, the interesting thing was, was that that influenced me hugely because I grew up in a house full of jazz. Ironically, I end up in a band that has a name that seems to be somehow negative towards jazz. None of us were negative towards jazz at all. So my favorite singer is Nat King Cole. I grew up listening to Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Sinatra, obviously, but Nat King Cole is my favorite, Dizzy Gillespie, whoever. And, um, and there's no doubt that he gave me a sense that it's doable. If, if you're good and you work at it, this is really key. He was very much into the idea that you had to put in the hours. Um, it, this is, no one's going to get a free ride here. There was no influence a culture back then you know it was literally you had to learn your instrument or you had to learn your craft and you had to be damn good and then you had to have some luck and good fortune along the way um and that kind of registered with me you know he really made it clear to me that if i wanted to be in music i was going to have to you know roll with the punches a bit and i did have to oh that's yeah. great that's awesome you know you released your first single at 17 you remember what it was yeah, it was called You Fooled Him Once Again. And um, 
it was it's now available the only place you can find it online is i think it's called funk classics volume two or volume one funk classics i was a, i was a soul boy as a lot of a lot of guys from the british electronic movement in the 80s were soul boys ironically and um uh yeah it was a it was a, a really interesting record my dad actually paid for the original demo of that i did it in a pretty fancy so studio. you're sitting in front of a piano yeah well, can you just play a few bars of that well back here will you be able to hear it no i'm well if, where, wherever you are you, you oh this oh i haven't yeah. played it for ages good heavens ah. um, oh hang on um <laughs> i gotta find the right key i don't know what the right key is you fooled him once again how come the joker always beats the diamonds ten? Oh, that's about as much as i remember <laughs> But you know what? Just from that, I mean, it sounds like another hit song. Why don't you re-record that? Because, no, seriously, that's hot. Well, it's it's a tough one because, you know, uh, in some ways, you know, uh, you write certain things in different times in your life. Right. And they reflect that time and they reflect your psyche at that time and how evolved or not evolved you are as a human mm. being. So for me, and I think this is true, typically true of artists, it's really hard to revisit things because it, it means you yeah. revisit part of yourself that you're no, you no longer are. Um, but a lot of people have asked me about that track. So it'd be nice to do it live. I think that's what it'd be cool. Wow, that's great. You started writing and you started that's writing for other artists at 18. What was your inspiration for that writing for other artists? Because you said at the beginning of this that you're a you're a songwriter and a singer. So yeah. is that what I'm was not your, a, what's your inspiration? I'm actually I'm actually not a writer for other people. I've I've done it very little. And mm -hmm. I didn't, to, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I had been signed back then on the strength of that song. I just uh, attempted to play you attempted to remember, <laughs> um, by a guy called Rusty Egan. And Rusty Egan was in a band called Visage. And Visage had a formative hit called Fade to Grey, which was one of the iconic electronic um, tracks from the early 80s that, I got into and Rusty saw something in me anyway, signed me and then told me I had the opportunity to go and write for Warner Brothers in L.A. for a while. Would I like to do it? And I was, you know, 17, 18. I just wanted to go to L.A. and have an right. experience. And I got to write for a, I got to write for the Drifters and Martha Reeves. And, uh, and but it was it wasn't as glamorous as it sounds, because essentially what I wanted to do, and this was typical of any musician who grew up in the 60s and 70s is who are you influenced by well as a as a young british musician the beatles of course and what did the beatles do they wrote their own material and they performed it and that was not true of artists throughout the jazz era it was actually quite rare they were so, crooners they were considered crooners and singers and of other people vocalists, um, but they weren't writers right so um, you form uh, Johnny Hates Jazz in 19... 
1986, and what were you like, 23 or something? Uh, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the origin of the name because it's a funny story. But when you when you wrote the first hit, Shattered Dreams, there there were a couple of things um, that I read about you where your dad was uh, an accomplished musician and everything, and he generally didn't really encourage you one way or the other in terms of uh, the songs that you wrote. But when you when he overheard you playing Shattered Dreams, he comes into your room and he's asking you like, oh, what's that? And you tell him and he says, I think you've written your first hit. That must have been wow. super inspirational. But the funnier part is that one of your uh, one of the producers you were working with uh, didn't think it was going to be a hit at all. And it's hilarious. I wonder if I want to find out if he did it. He said, if this is a hit. I'll stand naked at Selfridge's front window for a day. Yeah. Did he ever do that? No, he didn't. And uh, by the way, by the way, I should say that I wrote Shattered Dreams in this room. I'm actually, I'm looking after my mom now. She's 95. And so I'm back in the house I grew up in. And I've set up a studio in the room where I used to have a very rudimentary setup as a young guy. And that's where I wrote Shattered Dreams, actually just on a piano. You can't see it it's right in the corner there, that one. Wow. Um, so this is the room my dad walked into and said, you've written your first hit. Um, the producer that I'm talking about, he didn't produce Shattered Dreams, but he was very involved with us in different ways. His name was Mickey Most. And Mickey Most was actually, until Quincy Jones came along, the most successful record producer anywhere in the world. He produced the Yardbirds, the Animals, um, Susie Quattro, Hot Chocolate, Kim Wilde, Donovan, an amazing, an amazing guy. And Mickey um, had signed me as a solo artist. He was also the father of one of the members of Johnny Hates Jazz. And he had employed the other member as chief engineer at his studios, Rack Studios. And so Mickey knew us well. And he was very supportive of me as a, as a younger guy. But when he heard Shattered Dreams, he just didn't get it. <laughs> and my dad did. And that, there was an irony in that. Why would the guy from the jazz era get Shattered Dreams and the guy from the rock era uh, didn't get it? And when it was a hit, certainly there was a lot of a bit of fun poking of the fact that he, he hadn't seen it. But he actually was incredibly supportive of us and helped us record the Turn Back the Clock album, which Shattered Dreams is on. Um, in a way that was even affordable for us back then because he gave us studio time when most other people wouldn't have done for, for, for next to nothing. So he was a great supporter, but it was, it was quite fun when that happened, yeah. Where, where did the name come from? Because that's a great story too. My colleague in the band now, there's only two of us now, there were three of us, uh, Mike Nacito, who is actually from the States. Um, Mike grew up in England and he was at a family gathering where they were playing um, on, a, on a record player, Dave Brubeck, Take 5. And Mike's brother-in-law is called Johnny. And Johnny got out of his armchair, he was sitting in, walked over to the record player, tore the record off the player and broke it in two over his knee. And someone exclaimed, oh, Johnny hates jazz. Oh, <laughs> that is great. Mike weirdly remembered this phrase so many months later when it came to naming the band he he came up with this and 
hilarious. Me and the other guy, Calvin, started laughing. It just seemed like it, it had attitude and it, it was quite funny. And um, we knew that people were going to get annoyed by it. And that was when you're a young man, you think that's actually quite an exciting thing to do. Um, and, it, and, it, and it stood the test of time. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, in 1987, you had your first your first hit with Shattered Dreams, and then you followed that by Turn Back the Clock, I Don't Want to Be a Hero, and Heart of Gold. What is that like, achieving that kind of success at 23 years old? Well, I can only comment on that now as the man I am now. You know, back then, I just took it all in my stride. You know, of course, it was incredibly exciting, but I didn't quite realize the gravity of what we'd achieved because we had success globally pr pretty much simultaneously. So we, we were everywhere. And I kind of, uh, we'd all worked very hard to reach that position. You know, it wasn't an overnight success story. It was in terms of Johnny Hates Jazz, but as individuals, we'd worked very hard for many years to, to do this. Um, so I have to say, looking back, I think I was a little lacking in measure as to how special it was. Um, consequently, I left the band, you know, just a few months later to do my own thing for various reasons. Um, so now I look back on it and I think, wow, what an amazing thing to have happened. The fact that there are these group of songs that resonate with people 35 years later for various reasons. And it's all connected to, of course, what was happening in their life at the time or how they feel it, re it reflects on something that's happen happening culturally or societally in this moment in time. I mean, I Don't Want to Be a Hero, our second hit, is an anti-war song. And that a lot of people said, oh, my goodness, that a lot of the troops in Russia need to hear this. You know, it's basically a song saying, I, I do not want to go to war for the wrong reasons. It's written as a you know professional soldier. Um, and that's kind of, that's touching that the songs have relevance. That's what's most important. It's not that they were hits back then, that was big. It's the fact that 35 years later, they're still important to people. That's the measure of success to me. Mm -hmm. We'll see how mm -hmm. the big hits of today fare in 35 years time. I don't know, we'll, we'll find out then. One of, the, right. one of the fascinating things about looking at your career, um, because, you know, you know, I, whether any kind of entertainment, whether it's music or uh, making films or TV or something, a lot of times it's like, what have you done for me lately? And so you can be hot as hell and then people, or at least in the industry, forget about you. And yet over the years, you've managed to kind of stay active stay involved stay passionate uh you know and continue to follow this this musical passion of yours uh i think that's what's going to be sort of inspirational for people who listen to this is that if you find something that you truly love whether or not you're you know number one at this or number one at that the point is is you're doing something that you love and i think that comes through on even the the latest songs that you've been writing I think the key here is that, I mean, I, any musician, no matter how successful or not, has gone through their ups and downs in the industry. 
it's 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 not an easy industry to survive in. I, don't, I even don't like calling it an industry. That's for the business people. That's what they right. want to see it fine. For me, it's just music. Now, what, what what's the important thing here? I grew up in especially the 1970s when uh, there were a lot of big records that had something to say about the state of the world. One of my favorite tracks as a kid was Harvest for the World by the Isley Brothers. Um, or Stevie Wonder, Higher Ground. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, the Beatles, you know, All You Need Is Love and, and on and on. There are so many of them. And so for me, it was a natural thing to want to make music that, okay, you could do some that were about relationships, but some that were also reflections of what was happening in the world at the time. And all of those songs, by the way, are still incredibly relevant. So for me, the way I sustained myself and continue to is to remind myself that it's not just about music. Music is supposed to be a vehicle to encourage change. It can't do it on its own, but it sure as hell can help. But if no one's making that music, or rather if, if no one's being heard making that music, then we're left with music that is purely entertainment. And you know what? There are musicians who love doing that, who love entertaining. That's cool, but it's not me. I want music to have something to say that, like I say, promotes some kind of evolution amongst humanity. And so that, that to me is very important. And I've, uh, you know, I've, I'm very much part of the environmental movement. I've been a part of it for many, many years now. And I'm always reminded that there's not enough songs in the world about what we're doing to the planet. So, you know, it gives me motivation to say, oh, I, I'm going to write another one and find a different way of putting it. And then, like I say, you don't only do that. You want to counterbalance it with other things that are more personal. But anyway, that's kind of, I think, how I've done it. You, you mentioned that Johnny Hates Jazz is back together, correct? Yeah. So yeah. we are you. Oh, go ahead. No, go for it. Well, I was going to say, are you guys then going to tour? Um, are you going to write new music? Are you going to tour with your uh, your other hits? Um, what do you, what's your plan? Well, in the UK especially, we we have been performing quite a bit, and we we released two albums, 2013, an album called Magnetize, and 2020, an album called Wide Awake. And on both of those albums, you'll hear a, a kind of a a more grown-up Johnny Hates Jazz. It, but it, it's you'll hear the relevance and the connection with the early stuff very directly. It's not like you're going to hear, you know, something that is is so radically different. I think you, anyone who hears that will recognize who it is. Um, but in terms of what we do in the future, I think that, you know, we are focused on live performing. We're doing some gigs again uh, this year. We hope we'll be coming to the States soon. But I think that we're in a phase where, you know, I certainly understand that musicians need to diversify in order to not just survive, but to thrive. So certainly for myself, I will be continuing with my live streams, journey songs. That's going to become something that's, a, let's say, a little more formal and pre-recorded and and then the TV show I was talking to you about that, that I'm working on with the guys in the States. So I think there'll be a lot of different activity, but um, as far as new material for Johnny Hates Jazz, I imagine that will happen. Um, 
there's going to be an album called 80s Classical this year, which features us and some other artists performing our big hits with an orchestra. Oh, and, no. um, that's really cool. That's uh, We've done it live with this orchestra a few times now, and it's pretty powerful. It's it's very moving, especially being the artiste to experience that. So I think people will love that. That's the next thing coming out. That is classical. Cool. We have a we have a um, a, a saloon uh, called the Belly Up, and it's in it's in San Diego. And they get you know the Kenny Loggins, the Michael McDonalds, the Christopher Crosses, and I can see Johnny hates jazz playing there. Now those are small venues. And we have those all over the United States, these small venues, and it attracts big stars like you guys. What is the benefit of doing those small places where only maybe 100 to 200 people can can listen and, and watch you perform? What is the I benefit? I think Belly Up's probably like 800 or 900 when they pardon? Pass. I think Belly Up's about 800 or 900 when they- It was a standing room only with a cocktail. And then exactly. that's it, right. <laughs> Um, it's a really good question, Mike, actually. Uh, obviously, economically, it, you know, things have to pay for themselves as a bottom sure. line. And right. so you have to you have to make it work, especially if you're coming in from outside of the country. Um, but the benefit of doing them is that they're actually incredibly enjoyable. The small gigs, sometimes the gigs that are predominantly acoustic are great fun. There's something about how the lack of amplification, the lack of electronica brings the audience closer to you and you to them. And of course, it, it therefore allows for a little more audience interaction, a little more storytelling. And essentially, I think my colleague Mike would agree with this. The acoustic gigs, the small acoustic gigs are the most enjoyable. There's something about them that you come away feeling that you've actually contributed to someone's life because they've been uplifted by a very personal experience with artists they've loved listening to over the years. So that's the big thing for them, for me. Hmm. And I think, you know, and there's there's a resurgence of interest and passion for music from the 70s, 80s and maybe early 90s. We have some friends who uh, we've interviewed that uh, are in cover bands. One's a Russian band called Leonid and Friends, and they do cover songs of Chicago brilliantly. And they've been touring the United States also in those 1,000 to 2,000 capacity venues. And then there's one in, in Australia called the Hindley Street Country Club. And they do the same thing where they play these cover songs. They add a little twist to it uh, themselves, but they're, they're gonna be uh, touring uh, the United States and around the world. And, and the audiences for that uh, are huge because, you know, I think a lot of our generation doesn't really care that much for a lot of the new music. It, uh, you know, we sound kind of like our parents, I guess, you know, but, but it's like, it just, it doesn't register like the, the older music does. And, and in part, it's because of what you said. It's because a lot of those songs had really good messages. And, and I think that's why your music has survived and will continue to survive is, is, is that whole message aspect. I, I think so too. I think that's a huge aspect of it. And I think that you're quite right. We do sound like our parents, you know, if we diss music and it's, it's so easy to do that. But I think there is a fundamental 
difference beyond the lyrical content and and obviously there are there are records <coughs> or tracks that still have social relevance but it tends to be relevance to people's immediate environment in terms of for it, in terms of instead of it being a global message but but here's the other difference and that is that artists in the 80s grew up listening to music in the 70s or the 60s we grew up listening to the great writers of those times carol king stevie wonder lennon, lennon and mccartney you know and they taught us just by listening how to write melodies how to construct songs and so the 80s happened and you had this interesting coming together of a classical sense of songwriting that we grew up with and electronica hadn't happened before since drum machines classical songwriting that was the 80s that's why it was special that's why it won't happen again because that happenstance of those two things coming together literally cannot happen again so i think that music of that time still sounds interestingly current because a lot of it has a very strong electronic component so younger people relate to it quite mm -hmm. we have a lot of young people come to our gigs and and they often say to me we wish we had been kids in the 80s because this is what really resonates with us more than what's happening now and the other component of course is that you've got melodies that were written to last because that's what we grew up listening to and learning from so i think that's what attracts people i think the art of songwriting has morphed into something which i don't really quincy jones puts it well you know he said that there's no songs anymore that's just an assemblage of jingles <laughs> and, and, and i think that's really accurate you know a little catchy section goes to a little catchy section then another little catchy section then a catchy chant and then another catchy section that's not a song it's not a journey so um i think that uh, that's the reason why there's still a lot of passion for music of those times wow this has been really inspiring uh, i've learned a lot about music just listening to this and we want to we want to really uh, emphasize certain things with you first of all you do have a website clarkdatchler.com and you can go there and not only uh, hear all his music, but read about uh, the um, uh, polandrocks.org and the history and what's what's upcoming. So that's one site. Uh, uh, polandwelcome.org is also a place you can go to directly uh, donate, um, and, and which you know obviously Clark is encouraging. And right. then and yeah, and so are we. The live streaming that you do, is that on Facebook or is that on your website? Um, that's actually on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, but mainly Facebook and YouTube. And you'll find me by going to facebook.com forward slash Clark Dachler Official and YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Clark Dachler Official. And I'm there pretty much every other Sunday at 5 p.m. UK time, GMT. And um, it lasts for an hour. It's it's great fun. It's it's quite emotional um, for me and for the audience as we ve we venture through these different songs. So um, yeah, uh, the more the merrier. Yeah, and they're good. I mean, I've watched a couple of them, and there's a lot of interaction between you and the audience, and uh, where they can ask you questions or make comments. 
which is great. So that's another thing. If you if you're interested in in, in following uh, Clark, which we demand that you be interested in following. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and and thank you so much for not only doing this, but more importantly for what you're doing, uh, using your notoriety and your songs and everything to really kind of help those Ukrainian refugees. It's so important, and fortunately there are more and more organizations doing that. But but sometimes it takes uh, a face and a name to really drive people uh, into action. And so you know we want to thank you. Uh, for for doing that, and and we're going to do whatever we can to promote and and encourage people to to give. And next right. time you're in the states, look us up. We want to get together. Yeah. Absolutely, Mark and Larry. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great speaking to you guys. And um, yeah, I will definitely look you up. Okay. <laughs> All right, Clark. Thanks so much. And we'll see All you right. Sunday. See you That's, there. Okay. Take care. Thanks, Cheers. Right. Bye now. Cheers.